0: Recently, we interviewed Dr. Fidel Kaboob. He is the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity and a professor of economics at Tennyson University. Here's that. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for for coming on. Um, So first, so our audience has you know, an idea of the insight that you can offer. Could you describe for us a little bit your background and and the focus of your work? Uh, So I I teach economics here at Denison University in Ohio,
1: and I run the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, which is a public policy think tank. Um, A a lot of the work that I do revolves around uh, the concept of uh, MMT or modern monetary theory, which a lot of people are talking about these days. and um, i i grew up in in the middle east so most of my uh, work focuses on developing countries um, progressive policies for economic development and a- anytime you talk about you know progressive policies the big question that comes up is how are we going to pay for it you know government can't afford it governments are inefficient it's going to cause inflation it's going to bankrupt the country or it's it's a slippery slope to communism and authoritarianism and things like that so mmt you know, brings this kind of new way of looking at, you know, what sovereign governments uh, can do and what the limits of spending should be. Most people think the limits to spending is tax revenues or borrowing or whatever the private sector allows you to do. Uh, MMT takes a, takes a different uh, lens um, to brings it to the analysis. Um, so my, most of my work focuses on developing countries, but because I live in the U.S. and i been here for the last 20 some years. Uh, and I'm involved in a lot of uh, public policy work here and lots of campaigns. So naturally, I do a lot of work related to um, the progressive movement here in the US. Um, and the question in the US is also, how are you going to pay for Medicare for All? How are you going to pay for a Green New Deal? Are you going to fight climate change? How are you going to pay for you know, all this you know, ambitious public policy platform that the Bernie Sanders movement and the progressive movement? is putting on the table. Uh, and, and MMT, uh, I would argue without MMT, um, you can't really have a truly progressive platform. Uh, and I'm happy to unpack um, the details as, as we go and during this uh, conversation.
0: To start off, could you give us a basic picture of what MMT is and, and what MMT describes in the economy?
1: Absolutely. So uh, MMT... Highlights the importance of monetary sovereignty. So most people when they think of a government and they hear sovereignty They think political sovereignty that is a government has its territory and its military and its flag and its national identity these are kind of political aspects of, uh, of sovereignty, but monetary sovereignty the way we define it is, is the following it's a country that um, can do four things number one It issues its own currency, national currency, which is the easiest thing. Any country can can do that. In the U.S., it's the U.S. dollar. Number two, it's a country that um, collects taxes denominated in the same national currency. That's also easy. Most countries can do that. In the U.S., we pay taxes in U.S. dollars and only in U.S. dollars. Number three, it's a country that never issues bonds or government bonds denominated in a foreign currency which is the case in the United States. All the U.S. government bonds, treasury notes, are denominated in U.S. dollars and not in any other foreign currency. And this is where some developing countries lose monetary sovereignty because they're structurally forced into a scenario where they have to issue bonds, or in other words, borrow, and promise to pay back in euros or dollars or British pounds or some other foreign currency. So in the U.S., we have that third component, um, you know, under control. Number four, which is related to this external debt thing, number four, a government must have a flexible exchange rate. In other words, you don't fix your exchange rate to gold or silver or any other foreign currency. And again, developing countries for structural reasons, which we can discuss, find themselves in a scenario where they have to fix their exchange rate, fix their currency to the value of the dollar or to the value of the Euro or to the value of the British pound or some other currency. In the U.S., we have a floating exchange rate. So the dollar is not fixed to anything. Uh, we don't have a gold standard anymore. We have a fiat currency. So because we have these four conditions in place, we can say that the U.S. has a strong degree of monetary sovereignty Which means it allows the government to spend on all kinds of national priorities without having to worry about uh, a tax revenue constraint. But that doesn't mean that government spending should be unlimited. There is a limit within the MMT framework, but that limit is not tax revenues. In other words, MMT tells us, in, in the case of the United States, that the federal government, if we decide to have you know, a, a democratic government that truly represents the people, a government of the people, by the people, for the people, right? This is the, the whole point about democracy. Then that democratically elect, elected government can set the priorities that serve the needs of the majority of the people. If you want healthcare as a human right, and we have the majority of people in this country who want something like Medicare for all, if we have a majority of people who want the green new deal if we want the majority of people who want all kinds of things that happen to be part of the progressive agenda actually then according to mmt we can actually afford those things from a financial standpoint there is no shortage of money in the government and if you're curious about what i just said just read the news of the last uh, 10 days and 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 you'll recognize that, you know, literally three weeks ago, there was no money in Washington, D.C. for a Green New Deal or healthcare for all or any of the progressive stuff. It was called pie in the sky. We don't have the money. And then fast forward a few days later with the pandemic crisis, all of a sudden, two trillion dollars appeared out of nowhere in Washington, D.C. to bail out corporations and send money to people. and And this is just the beginning. It's going to be because of the pandemic. It's going to be even more government spending and when that happened nobody asked the question where did the money come from there was nobody was taxed in the last 2 weeks to pay for this and we didn't borrow from anybody to pay for this so sovereign governments can create money essentially out of thin air and that's not the the limitation obviously clearly as of this week it's clearly not the limitation the real limitation that mmt has been emphasizing and that we're facing today is the real physical productive capacity of the economy. In other words, we could issue $2 trillion today and send checks to everybody. The next step is that those individuals are going to go out and buy things. They're going to buy food, entertainment, transportation, new housing, whatever it is. It's a free country. They can buy whatever they want. The question is, does the economy have enough productive capacity of raw materials and technology and resources and, and skilled people to produce all the things that consumers want if the answer is yes then there isn't going to be any inflation if the answer is no then we're going to have too much money chasing too few goods and we're going to see prices going up so that's one component that leads to inflation and that's the real constraint from an mmt perspective it's the inflation constraint the other component that drives inflation in addition to potential shortages is market power when you have powerful price setters in the system, like health insurance companies or, you know, oil and gas companies or real estate companies in, in some, you know, markets in the US, those price setters will charge more because they can. So they'll drive inflation. So that brings the MMT perspective on inflation and says, well, you're not going to eliminate that, it, that kind of inflation by producing more. If you produce more, you can, you can solve the shortages question but you're going to have to tackle that via taxation and regulation. And the point of taxation and regulation here is to tax and regulate their price setting behavior out of existence. In other words, you democratize the market process, you democratize the, you know, uh, competitive, you create a competitive system where you eliminate these price setters. So that's kind of an, in a nutshell, the perspective that says, you know, we can actually afford all the priorities that we want. The only obstacle that's stopping us from getting there is not tax revenues. The real obstacle is technological resources, know-how, um, physical resources, and, you know, abusive price-setting behavior by by key players in, in the economy. Uh, and the good news is that we can we can deal with those issues if we have truly a government that's of the people by the people for the people as opposed to a government of the super bac- of the super PACs by the super PACs for the super PACs which is kind of where you you find these core industries that I just described here health insurance companies they're the mon- they're the main obstacle to Medicare for all and of course you know if you, if you look at their power and influence in politics their power and influence in media um, then then you realize we, we have a problem here. And it's a problem of democracy, um, not a technical problem of the government not having money to pay for it.
2: Fantastic explanation, thank you. You've mentioned how taxation will work a, a little differently than it does now because instead of spending coming from taxes, we just create the money and tax later if we need to. So for the average American, if we if our government followed the principles of modern monetary theory, what do taxes look like? How is it different? Does it change every year? Can you speak a little bit to that?
1: So when it comes to taxes, this is really the the part where a lot of people, you know, fall into the traditional trap of we need taxes in order to pay for this, because most of us are used to thinking about taxes at the local level. So everything I described so far for from an MMT perspective is for sovereign Governments—that that is the U.S. federal government, not states and municipalities and, and your local um, uh, government uh, entities. Those local entities, they have to operate on a completely different principle. In other words, they're users of the currency, just like you and I. So you and I have to work hard, earn an income in order to spend. You and I can also spend beyond our income if we wanted to. But in order to do that, we have to borrow from a bank or a credit card company or a friend or whatever, and then we have a real debt. And that financial burden must be paid eventually either by working more hours, earning more money, or spending less, or a combination of the two. That is also true for states and municipalities uh, at the local level. So everything I described with the MMT framework, this is for the federal government only. Don't try this at home. Don't try this with your local state or uh, municipal, you know, budget. So the part where people say, well, okay, if we get the federal government to do all this, then what's, what's the role of taxation? What, why should we pay taxes if the government can just, you know, spend? So the purpose of taxation plays multiple roles. Uh, the interesting part here for at the national level is that none of the roles of taxations involves raising revenues for the federal government to spend. So we should tax pollution because we want to decarbonize. We should tax oil and gas companies out of existence, in other words, not because we need their money or their permission to pay for a Green New Deal, but because we want to decarbonize the economy. We want to discourage that kind of uh, behavior. Um, It doesn't mean we want to, you know, drive them out of business and throw people under the bus in other words employees in the fossil fuel industry we have to have a just transition for them and that's why we have a job guarantee concept that takes people as they are where they are with whatever skills and then on the job paid training guaranteed at decent wages and benefits to transition into a different kind of economy same thing we it's it's not like we need to tax wall street because we need their money to pay for education We tax excessive wealth, we tax speculation out of existence, not because we need their money or their permission to fund education. Um, So taxation, taxing excessive wealth, for example, is, is not to fund progressive policies, but taxing excessive wealth, extreme wealth, to reduce inequality, to protect democracy from oligarchy. Um, to reduce their power and influence in politics, to reduce their power and influence in the price setting, um, reduce their price setting behavior in the marketplace, which causes inflation and, and, and socioeconomic exclusion and so on. So MMT opens up this framework that says there's a whole other reason for taxation, none of which is to raise money for the government. And finally, I want to say one thing here, just as a matter of logic, so that those of us on on the left and the progressive movement can can get on the same page with this. If we stick with the old narrative that says, let's tax corporations, let's tax the rich, let's tax them, you know, to raise revenues for all these progressive policies, then by design, your logic is leading you into the following narrative. It's leading you to say, well, if we want to have all this ambitious spending program on health and education and and green technology and all of that, it's going to require a lot of money. And if we're taxing the the rich and we're taxing corporations, we need them to be even richer so that we can tax a fraction of their wealth to fund all of these ambitious programs. So it defeats the whole purpose. So if you want corporations to be wealthier, then you're you're feeding into the narrative that says, oh, we want them to be greater in the future and bigger and more powerful so that we can you know, gather the crumbs from their wealth and fund these small, gradual, incremental programs to keep the population satisfied. Uh, MMT is saying, no, 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 we don't need their money and their permission. We want to tax them out of existence. And we want to take over essentially um, uh, an economic system that's governed by a democratic society, that's governed by a government, you know, 535 people in Washington DC who are not super PAC funded, but people funded. In other words, they're not, they're unbought and, you know, unbossed. Uh, They're representing their constituents and the needs of their constituents, as opposed to representing the needs of, you know, corporations and super PACs and big pharma and, and so on. So MMT shifts the narrative completely. And then to bring it full circle to your question about taxes at the at the local level, then we recognize, well, at the local level, we pay, you know, property taxes so that our kids can have funding for the local school district to get computers, to have after school programs and so on. And that that feeds back into inequality, by the way, as, as an example, because wealthier districts obviously have you know more resources to fund after school programs and transportation and summer camps and things like that. So if you recognize what the MMT framework is highlighting here, then you realize, well, there is no reason for a low-income district not to have resources because their tax base is lower than a wealthier district. The federal government can and should fund public education regardless of income levels of the community, regardless of property prices and property values. So you realize that we don't actually need to raise taxes at the local level. If education is a human right, if education is, you know, a key component of our future prosperity and quality of life, then that's part of the responsibility of the federal government. So there's no reason for local school districts to be underfunded uh, just because it happens to be a lower income community or lower property value community. Um, So it changes the narrative about what's the purpose of local taxation. It doesn't mean we should completely eliminate all local taxes. Maybe there is room for local taxes in, in, in some aspects. Um, but for fundamental human rights type of uh, things like health and education and broadband broadbed internet access, especially in rural areas, these are national infrastructure, national foundational programs that should not be left to... Um, the local authorities to figure out who are we going to tax to pay for this.
2: All right, so I'd like to drill down now into some more specific aspects of modern monetary theory, and I want to start with interest rates. Uh, in a government following the principles of MMT, how are interest rates affected? And in turn, how does the change in interest rates affect the average citizen?
1: So uh, interest rates from, from an MMT perspective, interest rates is it's a policy choice. Um, so the Federal Reserve Bank uh, in the US is the agency that decides what the interest rate should be. Uh, there's this idea that a lot of people have, especially in the mainstream of the economics profession, that interest rates somehow are determined by by markets. Uh, but in reality, the Federal Reserve Bank determines interest rates. So one of the main objections that um, mainstream economists in, in general have against you know, uh, large government spending, large government deficit is that they have this theory that says if the government spends too much, it's going to cause inflation, it's going to drive up interest rates, it's going to raise the cost of doing business on businesses because of the cost of interest rates, and it's going to lead to crowding out private business activity. And if you just look at the last 10 years since 2008, this this is what the mainstream economists were saying. All the, you know additional spending that the government did during the 2008 crisis and the federal reserve bank quantitative easing massive amount of liquidity injected in in the banking system they were thinking this is going to cause hyperinflation interest rates are going to go through the roof and we're going to see private investment you know collapsing and and the whole system you know going um, you know going broke and instead what we've seen since 2008 Inflation didn't even reach 2%, you know, barely, the, the central banks had a goal of raising interest rates, central banks here in the US and the European Union and Japan, trying actually to raise inflation from zero to 2% as as an, inf, an inflation target. And they tried every trick in the textbook to do that with massive, you know, quantitative easing and so on, and and they couldn't it turns out that the interest rate is actually not determined by all of this quantitative easing thing, not determined by, I'm sorry, I meant inflation is not determined by quantitative easing or by, you know, government deficits. Inflation is determined by what I described a minute ago, which is market power, price setting behavior and you know, productive capacity limits that we hit in some markets. And if you look at the inflation in the U.S., um, Today, and for the last decade or so, there's four pressure points that actually cause inflation, uh, healthcare, education, energy and transportation, and real estate. These are the pressure points where that are causing the cost of living to go up. But the inflation rate doesn't include just these four industries, it includes everything else except everything else is relatively deflating or stabilizing and these are the main pressure points. So when the inflation rate is kind of the average of all the other, you know, prices and all the other industries and that average is below 2% and has been below 2%, but these industries that I'm describing, they're inflating at 5, 6, 7, 10, sometimes even 20% per year. And that's why people feel the impact um, on in terms of their cost of living because these are the bills that they have to pay. So they realize that there's cost of living is rising, especially for health and education and transportation and energy and housing. But the economists are telling them, don't worry, the inflation rate is under 2%. So there's this huge disconnect between what people experience in terms of the bills they have to pay versus what economists are saying about inflation. So MMT zooms in on key industries and prices and then identifies That we have shortages of productive capacity in some areas and shortages are easy to deal with you train more people you hire more people you produce more stuff but the difficult part is market power you can't just make market power go away unless you have a government that looks at market power and regulates it and taxes it out of existence and that's why i keep going back to the purpose of taxation and, and regulation so interest rates that people consumers pay uh, for a mortgage or a credit card or you know any kind of consumer loan uh, they're kind of several notches down the road from what the central bank does uh, in terms of its monetary policy because in between what the central bank does and what the consumer pays for at the at the local level on a credit card debt or a mortgage debt there's a whole bunch of you know steps that go in And the financial industry is there to exercise its market power um, and to exercise its restrictions and exclusions. And in some cases, to exercise its predatory behavior when you think of the payday lending and and so on. Um, So I'm not sure if this answers fully your question or if I'm going in a slightly different direction.
2: That was great. Thank you. Uh, Moving over to government deficit, Uh, it is my understanding that there's an inverse relationship between a government deficit and private sector surplus, or vice versa, so that when the government spends more money, the private sector has a greater surplus, and when the government is having a surplus, that the private sector may even go into a deficit. Uh, Please correct me if I'm wrong there, and can you explain how that link works? Where government deficit is converted into private sector surplus,
1: so w- what you described there is not completely um, correct, but it's also not completely incorrect so let me let me uh, clarify so MMt talks about what we call the three sector balances, so yes, there's the government sector, there's the private sector, but the sector that you're missing in in your uh, statement earlier is the foreign sector, so to get a more realistic picture, there's the rest of the world too right. So what MMT highlights is that in the case of the US, for example, we issue the US dollar and we tax, you know, residents and businesses in US dollars as as the government. Outside of that federal government, there's what we call the domestic private sector, that's consumers and businesses and nonprofits here in the US. But there's also the rest of the world that uses US dollars because we export and import with the rest of the world. So the MMT point is that if we have a deficit on the government side then that deficit is exactly equal to the penny of the sum total of the non-government sector balance so non-government sector that includes u.s domestic sector and the foreign sector put together let's call them non-government right everybody else outside of the u.s government So in other words, if the federal government has a deficit, like now we're just spending $2 trillion, adding $2 trillion to the deficit, literally, where are those $2 trillion going? They're going to households, they're going to um, businesses here in the U.S., and indirectly, some of the household spending will be in the form of imports from the rest of the world, right? Some of the business spending will be in the form of importing materials from the rest of the world. So. So the $2 trillion that we're adding to the deficit is exactly equal to a surplus of $2 trillion available to the non-government sector right now. And that non-government sector, again, is U.S. households, U.S. businesses, and the rest of the world combined. So the implication of this is, is the following. If I'm running for president, let's say, and I'm going to you know follow the, the dominant political narrative and say, vote for me, and when I go to D.C., I'm going to make sure that the government is spending responsibly vote for me and i'll make sure that the government doesn't have this huge deficit i'll do even better i'll make sure that the government has a surplus in other words you take that statement that a political candidate is is making and you translate it with this mmt description of the three sector balances and it's as if that candidate is saying vote for me i'll make sure that the government has a surplus and i'll make sure that you the non-government sector have a deficit and non-government sector. That means the rest of the world, foreign sector. And that means the domestic private sector. Now, if you're a business, you can't be in deficit forever. You just go out of business. And structurally, since the 1970s, we in the United States run trade deficits with the rest of the world. In other words, the rest of the world has a surplus with the US. So if corporations have to run a surplus. If the rest of the world is currently running a surplus, then who is going to run the deficit on the non-government side? It's going to be households. And that's exactly the problem that we have in the U.S. We have households, especially lower income households, deeply in debt. Um, And if the government puts additional pressure on households because the government wants to run a surplus, then we're driving the private sector into further crises. So that's why the reasonable responsible thing to do for the federal government is to have the federal government always run a deficit so that the rest of us in the private sector can accumulate a surplus, can emu- accumulate savings, can reduce our debt, personal debt, and can accumulate savings for retirement, for college, for whatever we want as, a, as a pro- so that the private sector can thrive. But then the question is who gets what in that private sector surplus? So there's a question of distribution. Are we going to make sure that the two trillion dollars that we're spending this week are mostly going to working class people lower income individuals or is it mostly going to go to large businesses and corporations and real estate companies and and so on so that becomes a political question but mmt just gives us a description of where money comes from and where it goes to and then it shines the light on who gets what and that drives a lot of uh, additional policy prescriptions that say well we need better income distribution If we want, you know, a more prosperous, equitable society.
2: To talk about some more of the applications of MMT itself, to sort of focus in on something you said earlier, um, how does this all relate to a jobs guarantee program? Uh, what role does that play in the MMT model? And how does MMT uh, lead to full employment?
1: So if we if we recognize from an MMT perspective that a sovereign government can set the national priorities and can afford financially from a, from a monetary standpoint to pay for those priorities then typically from a from a macro standpoint uh, macroeconomic standpoint one of the main goals of macroeconomics is to produce full employment it's just we constantly you know pretend that it's impossible right well mmt says well if that's a a priority and if anybody who's ready willing and able to work uh, is uh, is able to find work in the private sector then fine but in reality that's not the case. We have lots of people, millions of people, who are ready, willing, and able to work, but can't find employment in the private sector and are constantly, you know, um, you know, struggling. So the job guarantee um, is is actually not a novel idea when it comes to what governments typically do. Um, I prefer to use the 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 concept of buffer stock. Uh, mechanism and I'll describe what buffer stock mechanism is because it's something that we use all the time uh, except in the labor market so for example uh, the US is one of the most productive countries on the planet in terms of food production we produce massive food surpluses Um, we actually pay farmers not to produce we're the you know biggest producers of of food Um, so what happens if farmers produce a massive amount of corn this year it's a massive harvest and they try to sell it in the marketplace and there there isn't just enough demand for corn and they're just massively productive they bring it to the marketplace the price goes to zero because you're just flooding the market with with product and that's not good because then farmers go bankrupt if if they the price of the the output that they are selling is is decreasing over time so the mechanism that we have is the following. We have the federal government intervening in the corn market. We do this for corn and wheat and all kinds of um, food products. The federal government intervenes automatically every year and buys the additional amount of corn off of the market. So in other words, the government intervenes as a buyer of last resort for key, key for key food commodities like corn, wheat, and, and so on. And the government will buy quantities that are large enough to allow the price to be reasonably profitable for farmers. And then the government takes all that corn, all that wheat and stores it away in massive warehouses all over the country, mostly in the Midwest. They, they call them caves because they're massive and they're not even warehouses. And the government would store that corn and wheat and all the, you know, non-perishable food that the government can store with the idea that maybe two or three down years down the road we have you know forest fires we have you know floods or we have you know something that leads to a bad harvest which means we could be in a situation where there's shortage of corn in the marketplace and fr- prices would skyrocket and will cause inflation will cause food price inflation in the US that's when the federal government intervenes with the reserves of corn and wheat and, and food stuff that we have stored. And the government intervenes then to, to uh, intervenes as a seller of last resort to add to the quantity supplied in the marketplace. And this way, the price will not be so expensive and will tame the price inflation in corn and wheat and, and food prices. So that's what we call the buffer. It's a buffer mechanism that essentially sets a minimum floor for food prices so that Farmers don't go bankrupt and also sets a ceiling for food prices so that consumers don't experience food price inflation. So we intervene constantly to keep prices within reasonable limits. And that's an anchor for the price system for corn and food and other key commodities. And we do this, by the way, across so many other uh, areas. In and, and the financial markets, the Federal Reserve intervenes when the market is crashing they intervene as the buyer of last resort of mortgage-backed securities and, and other uh, assets to lift up the stock market kind of set a minimum floor. And when the market is experiencing speculation and a speculative bubble and prices are going through the roof, the Fed also intervenes to tame that bubble. So we have all of these mechanisms and they're important mechanisms because they keep prices stable and within reasonable range, except we don't have a buffer stock mechanism for the most important market, which is the labor market. Because technically speaking, if you are unemployed in the US, the effective wage that you receive is zero. So we allow the price of labor to go to zero on a regular basis, but we don't allow the price of corn to go to zero. We don't allow the price of financial assets to go to zero because those are important. And what NMT is highlighting is saying, the most important price in the system is the price we pay for labor. That's wages. So instead of having a buffer stock for corn, where we take the corn and store it away in a, in a cave, what we do is have the government act as an employer of last resort. Hire anybody who's ready, willing, and able to work, but can't find employment in the private sector. But instead of storing them away in a cave, obviously, which will be you know silly, we use that labor for productive purposes in the local community to serve needs of the disadvantaged communities. And the advantage of, of having a, a job guarantee program of this kind is that you actually use that employment program as a way to improve skills, education. So you do on-the-job paid training and education to serve the needs of the community uh, communities that are underserved. Uh, And and there's a whole, you know, wide variety of things that we can do in so many communities. And that includes a component of the Green New Deal, which we uh, referred to a little bit ago, which is the concept of just transition for fossil fuel workers, for workers from the healthcare industry that will be displaced by a more efficient Medicare for all system. A job guarantee means you take people as they are, where they are, and you reallocate labor time and labor resources to productive uh, purposes so that we can actually transform the economy to a greener economy, more sustainable economy. So the job guarantee is a core feature of, of the MMT framework, because it's a price stabilization feature. It's just, most people think of it as an employment feature, which, which it does have those aspects, but fundamentally it's, it's a price stability feature that guarantees that no matter who you are, no matter what your skills, your, uh, wage will not go to zero. That there's always going to be, uh, a source of income for you and your family with benefits and a way to, uh, gain skills, improve, uh, educational opportunities for, for everyone. And of course, there's a long list of things that need to be done, uh, during a pandemic or during normal economic times that would require additional labor resources.
0: Shifting to something else you talk about a lot in your work, what might a developing country have to learn from the MMT model?
1: Very good question. So the, the first thing that developing countries take from the MMT analysis is to start focusing on the things that matter. Um, because from a mainstream perspective, they're, they're used to thinking in terms of tax revenues. That's what we need in order to pay for you know, economic development programs like healthcare, or education, whatever. And MMT says it's not really the tax revenues that are the real constraints, it's the real productive capacity of the economy. Developing countries have an additional constraint, which means this additional constraint is the fact that most of the government debt, I don't know, in, in some cases, is denominated in foreign currencies. So if if a country borrows and, and owes you know financial institutions or the imf or the world bank you know billions of us dollars the only way for that country to earn us dollars to pay that debt is to do one of the following things export more than what you import so you can earn us dollars Um, you can bring a lot of tourists to your country because they come in with dollars and euros and, and british pounds so it allows you to pay your debt you can um privatize some of your state-owned companies like the airlines the the public utilities you know you can sell uh, land or whatever to foreign investors and companies Uh, that brings in u.s dollars that allows you to pay for your debt you can um, uh, try to accelerate your exports so export more than what you import Um, you can bring in foreign direct investment so you can Mm -hmm. In other words, be the recipient of outsourced jobs from, say, the U.S. or Europe. So you have companies relocate, bring a lot of U.S. dollars and produce stuff. These are kind of the the typical strategies, except all of these strategies are a trap. And and we've known this for for a while. And MMT is just shining a a bright light on this issue. And these are a trap for the following reason. Because most developing countries lose their monetary sovereignty in the first place. For three major structural reasons. Number one, most developing countries import a lot of food. They they can't actually produce most of their food. And this is kind of a legacy of a post-colonial uh, policy decision that was made in Europe and the U.S. and Japan and other places. Because most developing countries used to be the breadbasket of the colonial powers, but after independence. Um, Colonial, the former colonizers decided to heavily subsidize their food industry, agricultural industry and kind of put barriers and kind of destroyed um, the food production system in most of the developing world. So um, structural problem number one, they import a lot of food. Structural problem number two, they uh, import a lot of energy. And this is also true even for the biggest oil producers, they import energy. Um, give you an example if you produce a lot of crude oil crude oil is a useless thing if you can't refine it and turn it into gasoline and kerosene and petrochemicals that you that you can use and it turns out most developing countries don't have the refining capacity the technology and the resources to to do that so they end up even though they Im- export a lot of crude oil they end up importing gasoline and kerosene and other petrochemicals that they need domestically the the, the issue there is that you end up exporting low value added content material like crude oil, and then you import high, va- uh, high value added products like uh, gasoline and kerosene and petrochemicals. In other words, you're constantly losing in that trade. You export low value added, you import high value added. And then the third structural weakness goes beyond energy and food. It's across the board. The entire industrialization process that developing countries pursued in the, since the 50s and 60s to this day is an industrialization policy that focuses on assembly line type of manufacturing, which means you import all the high value added content, the technology, the materials and so on. And then you hire cheap labor and you race to the bottom to assemble those things and then export Uh, a low value added content because your contribution to the production process is low value added content, which is cheap labor. So you have these three features and you're constantly digging yourself into a trap because you're never accumulating enough, you know, surplus in terms of value added content or whatever to, to get out of that trap. So the result of these structural weaknesses is a trade deficit and a trade deficit that forces you into borrowing in foreign currencies because now you need to borrow even more money to pay for the fossil fuels that you're importing to pay for the food that you're importing uh, and to pay for the technology that you're importing and the medicine that you're importing and so on so back to those five um, solutions that the mainstream uh, provide it turns out that if you're trying to attract more tourists to your country because you need their dollars well those tourists you have to feed them so you end up importing more food you have to transport them. You have to heat and cool the buildings for them. So you end up invest, spending so much more money on food imports and energy imports because you're trying to attract a few more tourists. Uh, if you're trying to privatize a state-owned company, um, if, if you privatize it and you, know, you sell the airlines or you sell the airport to a foreign company and they pay you, you know $500 million for it or whatever, so you spend the $500 million and then that's it. You can't privatize the airport again. It's not yours anymore. So we, most developing countries went through that stage pretty quickly. They privatized everything that can be privatized. And then you're back to square one. You still have a structural problem. If you're trying to accelerate your exports, it turns out that the more you industrialize, and especially if you do it by specializing in assembly line type of work, the more energy you have to import for shipping and and energy production and so on. Um, And the more technology you have to import, the more high value added inputs you have to import in order to export more. So most countries that started pursuing this export-led growth, they discovered pretty quickly that it turns into, you know, larger and larger uh, debt over time, external debt. So all of these strategies are failing strategies from an economic standpoint, from a social, political, ecological standpoint. And MMT is saying, you know, if you're in a big hole, the first thing you need to do is you stop digging, you stop pursuing these policies and you look for alternative solutions. So if the structural problems are food imports, energy imports and low value added uh, specialization of your uh, industries, then the solution must address these three areas. So number one, you have to switch away from energy imports and invest in domestic renewable energy number two if your problem is food imports then you prioritize domestic sustainable food production Um, if your structural problem is low value added content of manufacturing then you invest in education and training and research and development so that you're not pursuing industrialization for its own sake you have to have a strategy Um, and increasingly more economists in the developing world are you know opening their eyes to this new framework uh, and embracing it and it's I'm not saying it's easy it's an uphill battle trying to convince uh, governments in developing countries that they should stop digging and and look for alternative uh, solutions but there's also you know the geopolitical power and influence of the US of the IMF of the financial institutions who who dominate the narrative and dominate the policy space uh, in terms of all of these uh, solutions. But, you know, what's happening in the world today, uh, the pandemic is is not only opening people's eyes in the U.S. in terms of what the uh, what resources the federal government has uh, to pursue national priorities, but it's also opening people's eyes in the developing world and, and saying that if we're going to deal with, with a pandemic, the only way to do it is by having more productive resources and hospital uh, bed capacity and, and you know you know ppe equipment and so on it's not about having the money it's about having the real physical productive resources the skilled people and, and so on and to to close this uh, point about developing countries and and especially uh, skilled uh, labor resources Um, The U.S. State Department has been, you know, flooding social media in in developing countries with advertising, essentially uh, recruiting doctors and nurses and and, um, healthcare professionals from developing countries. We have a shortage here in the U.S. because we had a failed healthcare policy for the last several decades. And we have a global failed healthcare policy because we've been telling developing countries, you can't afford more spending on healthcare and, and education. You should, you know, try to pay your bills, pay your debts. So they too have shortages. And now because we're in a global crisis, it's, it's also a, a, bidding, a, pr- a bidding war between developed countries who are desperate for doctors and nurses and, and, and skilled healthcare workers, and we're stealing them away from developing countries who need them the most right now. And that's just the, 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 the sad reality of, of the system that we're experiencing is that the, the countries with the most limited resources are now going to be losing doctors and nurses to the virus itself. We ha- we're losing doctors and nurses every day around the world who are dying because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. But now we have the more powerful, wealthier countries attracting them um, away from, um, from, uh, from the developing world. Uh, and that's, uh, that's just um, very sad.
0: Considering all of that, what, what role or what responsibility would you say developed economies have in promoting foreign growth? What goals should we, should we keep in mind?
1: Number one, I, I would move away from the concept of growth.
0: Um, you know, as,
1: as the saying goes, growth for its own sake is the ideology of a cancer cell. Uh, so definitely growth for its own sake is, is, should not be the goal. Uh, the goal here is to, is to think, you know, from a fundamental standpoint and say, what is it that we want from an economy? right? Is it GDP? Is it economic growth? Is it these big numbers in the stock market? These are meaningless for most people. What most people want at their very basic level is access to decent housing, decent food, uh, decent um, uh, healthcare, uh, better quality of life, in other words, access to public parks and entertainment and things that allow people to not just survive, but to live and thrive um, and enjoy higher quality of life, right? And that's what we describe as sustainable prosperity. So if that's the goal, then then we start framing our entire political and economic system and our choices to target those goals. So for example, we try to move away from GDP as an economic indicator, as a policy target, and focus on quality of life indicators, so and and this is very intuitive to most people because this is what we experience so we have these debates across the country where people say um it will be nice to have after-school programs for the kids it will be nice to have uh, summer camps to inspire kids with music and theater and sports and 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 to allow kids to learn and thrive and grow and so on then they say well it's too expensive we can't afford these things we don't have you know, revenues for it. And we tried to pass a levy and it didn't pass at the local level. So too bad we can't have that. So we don't do any of these after school programs, any of the summer camps. We we don't support kids and, and their families as as they're growing up. And then 15 years later, we build a prison for those same kids because that's affordable. Of course it's not. So we have to shift our priorities and think carefully about the cost of not doing anything, the cost of not investing in renewable energy, the cost because we're already paying for the consequences. It's just a hidden cost because today we have people saying, oh, we can't afford to clean the water source um, from all the fracking and all of that. Uh, fracking is good because it brings jobs. It brings tax revenues, brings all of this stuff. So instead, you know, we don't invest in renewable energy. We don't you know, do all the right things because we think it's too expensive. It's unaffordable. Instead, we're willing to pay for cancer treatment for everybody in town for the next 30 years because that's affordable. Of course it's not. We just have to shift the narrative about the priorities. And we have to do this across the entire system, not just in the U.S., but globally, right? So we have to, um, you know, this moment of a pandemic is, is really um challenging obviously from a from a humanitarian standpoint from an economic standpoint from a public health standpoint but it's also forcing all of us to rethink our priorities forcing all of us to rethink what is affordable what is necessary uh and and we on on the progressive in the progressive movement on on the left this is our moment to kind of Uh, reset the priorities for our fellow citizens citizens and say there is there is much more to life than economic growth there is much more to life than than um, you know the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 and I think everybody recognizes that uh, today but also we have to look beyond our borders and, and look at the pain and suffering that developing countries are have been submitted to um, way before the pandemic because of the the economic system that we've imposed on uh, on countries during colonial times and also during what i call neo-colonial times, post-colonial times because the the economic the global financial system that we set up and the global uh, trading system that we set up has been devastating for the most vulnerable people in, in, the, in the developing world.
2: So, I'd like to close this interview with a focus on how we can strategize um, with what exactly you were talking about, pushing the idea of MMT into the mainstream. So, this is obviously a very important issue to progressives, but it's seldom talked about in the mainstream. So, how can progressive politicians, people like AOC, people like Morgan Harper, better integrate MMT into their policy or rhetoric? And what do you think exactly is the strategy to bring this into the mainstream?
1: Very good question. So, first of all, I don't think it will be sufficient for, for the progressive movement to count on, you know, Bernie or AOC or Morgan Harper or, you know, uh, Ilhan Omar or any, anybody else in, in Congress. It's, it's important to have, you know, advocates in, in Washington, D.C. And, and people who run for Congress on this. But it's, it's even more important to build a movement. Uh, in other words, a critical mass of people who actually understand these ideas and embrace them and can push back when people say we can't afford it. Where is the money going to come from? We can't pay for it. So that's why, <clears throat> excuse me, that's why I see the, the, my role personally in, in, in this movement is to, you know, share this knowledge, educate as many lay people as possible um, and empower them with the knowledge that this is within reach. This is not pie in the sky. This is not impossible. This is actually cheaper than the system that we have, right? If we, if you take a comprehensive view on, on what, you know, what the true cost of, you know, uh, the current system are. So you empower people, you build a movement, you give people hope that this is within reach. And then the next layer is people in the media, including social media, influencers on social media, who can start reshaping the questions. So instead of asking, how are you going to pay for it? You start asking, how are we going to mobilize the resources to afford this program, the real resources? How are we going to organize people and build a movement that demands Medicare for All, uh, that wouldn't compromise with any other you know, uh, less generous, less effective healthcare system. Um, those become the important questions and the, the question of how are you going to pay for it immediately disappeared when the pandemic really hit, you know, the, the U S and people realize there's, this is serious and millions of people can die with, uh, during this pandemic. And nobody asks how we're going to pay for it. We just know that we're going to have to do it. Right. And we've done this before. This is not new. This is not just this pandemic. We do this all the time. Every time the, the U.S. is about to start a new war, nobody says, where is the money going to come from? They just say, we're going to do it. Uh, when we entered World War II, nobody said, where did the money come from? World War II came right after the Great Depression, the most miserable economic time in U.S. history. There was no money to be taxed. There was no money to be borrowed, but it was a national priority, so we paid for it. The question during World War II was, how do we mobilize the real resources to win the war, not the monetary resources? So it, it's important for us in this movement to educate, to empower ourselves with with knowledge and to have, you know, pushback narrative, an alternative narrative that says these are the priorities and we can afford them. And then it's it, it's deeply political, needless to say, that it turns out that some of the key obstacles to this movement are, you know, The majority of elected officials in Washington DC funded by the super PACs on both sides of the aisle, um, their lobbyists and you know, the media companies that spin their narrative, um, those are the real obstacles. It's their power and influence in politics, their power and influence in the market, uh, their power and influence in shifting the cultural narrative about what's even possible. So the good news is that if we, you know, um, re-energize the people to form a government of the people, by the people, for the people, then we can have better informed lawmakers in Washington, D.C. who set the priorities that serve the needs of the people, not the corporations, not the super PACs. That's, That's the only hope we have. But if we keep electing people who are funded by super PACs, then I guess we we get what we vote for, right? Um, and so it's it's important to build the movement in a in a decentralized way. And, and it's not enough for a movement to say, well let's let's get out the vote. Let's get everybody to vote for a candidate and then go home and do nothing for four years. Right. Um, so this is that's why they call it a
0: struggle because it's hard work. Thank you so so much for that insight and thanks for coming on the show again. This is Dr. Fidel Kabub. He's the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity and a professor of economics at Denison University here in Ohio. For people listening who may want to learn more about your work or more about uh, modern monetary theory, what, what would you recommend they look into, or or is there any any place you'd recommend they go first? there's
1: plenty of wonderful resources maybe you can post these with the with the podcast um off the top of my head um uh, there's lots of organizations you can look up on social media on the internet so there's uh uh, the global institute for sustainable prosperity a shameless plug for the organization i work with Um, there's also the levy economics institute at bart college there's the modern money network um, both on social media, online, everywhere. There's the Real Progressives, um, you know, a very um, uh, active group. Uh, there's literally, you know, dozens of, of other organizations. There's, there's one stop shop type of website that has a bunch of links to a lot of organizations and literature and videos and resources. Uh, I believe the website is called wecanhavenicethings.com or something like that. I, I always get uh, get that confused, but if you just Google "we can have nice things," it's it's an MMT thing. Like we we can afford all of these nice things. So I think it's called wecanhavenicethings.com, and it has a bunch of links. There's um there's an organization in in the UK called the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies. Uh, it's spelled GIMS, and they also have a fantastic list of resources that links up to so many organizations um, across, uh, across the world, actually. Um, there's, you know, literally a bunch of podcasts and videos. So there's a, a podcast called, uh, money on the left. Uh, it's podcast by the modern money network. There's a podcast called macro and cheese, uh, by real progressives. There is of course the MMT podcast, uh, which is, um, comes out of the UK, um I'm, I'm probably blanking on a bunch of others but uh, all of these websites that i mentioned and if you follow them on social media you'll see cross postings of so many resources on a daily basis um, so please follow these organizations support them uh, draw your local candidates to learn uh, these uh, these ideas and engage with us uh, we're, we're open to you know doing webinars and seminars and presentations and and kind of one-on-one discussions with anybody who's interested in running for office, and and educating the the public or the media or candidates or elected officials in office, because they too need to, um, you know, shift the narrative with us. We we don't have to vote them out of office if they if they you know get their act together and understand why they're in Congress and who they're supposed to represent and what what it means to have the power of the purse, because this is what we're talking about. Congress has the power of the purse.
0: Well, thank you. And I'll be sure to include those resources in the description of this video. Thank you so much again for coming on. Really insightful, really interesting. We really appreciate having you. Thank you. My pleasure.